Chapter 11. God's Plan of Taxation Our modern age sees taxation as a burden levied against material wealth by the state. This, however, is not the proper meaning of the word tax. To tax means to assess the value of something and to lay a burden upon it which must be paid. Thus, anything that can be deemed to have value can be taxed. A man's time, for example, is valuable in the eyes of God, and he has laid a burden upon it by requiring man to keep the Sabbath. Again, man taxes his mind since he considers it to be valuable and lays a burden upon it in order to work efficiently and effectively, etc. We can understand, then, that taxation is not confined to material wealth. It is a burden that can be levied against all things of value, whether it be time, talent, brains, property, etc. Anything of value can be taxed. The question arises, if an item has to have value to be taxed, what can be considered to have value? The answer is that value is determined by law. Whoever has the power to tax will determine by his law what is valuable. All things that are legal in terms of his law will be seen as having value. For example, the state of California views the possession of heroin as illegal. In the eyes of the state, heroin has no value, and therefore is not subject to inventory, personal property, or other taxation. Proceeds from the sale of heroin are subject to taxation because money is lawful, but the heroin itself is not subject to taxation since it is illegal and without value in California. We can understand from this that whatever the taxing authority views as legal has value and is subject to taxation. Also, whatever the tax authority's law deems as illegal has no value and is not subject to taxation. Law then determines what, it, what has value and what does not. Therefore, whoever has power to create law has power to create value and whatever has value is subject to taxation. This means that whoever has the power to create value by law has the power to determine good and evil. Genesis 3.5 This is true because whatever the law determines to have value is seen as legal and good, while that which is illegal in terms of law has no value and is seen as being evil. Hence, whoever has the juridical power to determine value for the purposes of taxation has power to determine good and evil and is as God. The power to tax stems from the power to make law, which establishes good and evil for man. The power to tax can either stem from God, or it can stem from man. It cannot stem from both. Our modern age sees taxation as solely a state prerogative, which means that our age views man as the determiner of value. But scripture posits God only ha as having the power to legislate for man and creation. The law or word of God sets forth what is legal and has value, and what is illegal and has no value for man. Man's judgments concerning what is valuable and productive are to be ruled and circumscribed by God's revelation of himself to man. Furthermore, what is legal and has value in terms of the word of God is subject to God's plan of taxation. We can see that taxation is not confined to material wealth, but can and does extend to all things that conform to law. This means, in essence, that taxation can be levied against all areas of life and thought, since all life and thought are ruled by con some conception of law. Taxation, then, can be understood as one of the means by which deity and law are impressed upon the mind of man. It is the means of establishing in the mind of man what is legal, what has value, and what does not. Taxation is for the purpose of impressing upon man the legal limits of his thoughts and deeds. It is for the purpose of determining for man what is good, has value, 
and what is evil has no value. It is one of the primary means by which men learn to think and act in conformity to the law of their God. The payment of taxes forces men to think in terms of deity. If the state is the source of the power to tax, then the state is as God on earth. It determines what is good and evil and will impress its conception of law and its omnipresence on man by taxing all of his thoughts, deeds, and possessions. It will continually enlarge its sphere of influence and power by taxing all things in order that man will function solely in obedience to its will as expressed in its law. Since the state never taxes objects, persons, or ideas in principle, but only taxes specific items, the state must attempt to control all things by taxing all things. For example, it will tax beliefs and ideas by licensing churches, books, schools, plays, etc. Those beliefs that do not acknowledge the state as a god will not be allowed to pay taxes or license fees and will, therefore, be illegal and outlawed. For this reason, the church can never allow itself to be licensed by the state, for such licensing is tacit recognition by the church that Caesar is Lord. If God is the source of the power to tax, then God by his law determines what is good and evil. God will use his power to tax to impress upon man the limits of his thoughts and deeds. He will use his power to tax to force man to see that God and not man is the determiner of law and value. God, by taxing all things in principle, will establish before the mind of man his total omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. This is exactly what God's plan of taxation does. Since God taxes all things in principle, nothing escapes his influence. The payment of God's taxes by man forces man to think continually in terms of the word of God. It forces him to acknowledge the lordship of Christ in every area of life and thought. It does so because his thoughts are continually circumscribed by his continual payment of God's taxes. This is why the failure to pay to God any duties that he has imposed upon man is so damaging. Failure to pay any one of God's taxes leads to an inability to think God's thoughts after him properly in that area of life. It leads to an improper understanding of how God rules man and creation. Because failure to acknowledge God as Lord by payment of his taxes destroys our understanding of his word that upholds this world. Hebrews 1.3 our continual payment of God's taxes is essential if we are to continue our fellowship with the Lord. The payment of God's taxes forces us to know the word of God more fully than we would have otherwise. Taxation either stems from God or it stems from man. It does, it does so because law either stems from God or from man. The juridical principle of taxation is that it must establish lordship by obedience to law. For this reason, the purpose of taxation is never founded upon a desire to obtain funds, but stems from the desire to impress upon man the legal principle of lordship. This is the purpose of all plans of taxation, whether they are of God or of reprobate man. God's laws of taxation are for the purpose of establishing God's name on earth. They are to enable man to know God and to have community and fellowship with him in every area of life. For this reason, God's plan of taxation is all-encompassing. He taxes every facet of a man's life in order that man may constantly be confronted with the Lord. Thus, God's taxes are a man's time, the Sabbath, etc., as well as his material wealth. Because of space limitations, however, we will only examine those laws of taxation which require some payment by man of his material wealth to God. We will examine these laws for the purpose of understanding the juridical principle that undergirds each.
It should be remembered that God's law is law in principle. He gives us specific examples to which his laws apply in order for us to be able to discern general principles or rules that can be then applied to all similar conditions and circumstances. God requires that we understand and apply the juridical principles contained in his word in our daily lives. The plan of taxation by God can be divided into two general categories. First, there is state taxation, which is the poll or head tax. Second, there is Levitical or social taxation, which are the first fruits, firstborn, and the tithes. The other taxes, the gleanings and the poor loans, will be examined when the poor tithe is discussed. State taxation, the poll tax. The poll or head tax, Exodus 30:11-16, formally divided church and state in Israel. This does not mean that religion and law were separated from the state. On the contrary, the state was the creation of God's word and subject to it, and limited by it. What it does mean is that both the civil and ecclesiastical centers of Israel were responsible before God for enforcing those provisions of God's law that had been assigned to each by Scripture. The state, in other words, could not take upon itself the enforcement of ecclesiastical concerns and the church could not attempt to enforce matters of law that were assigned to the state. For example, the church could not enforce capital crimes through execution, since this was the prerogative of the state. Neither could the state enforce the laws dealing with the sacrificial system, since these were the concerns of the ecclesiastical center. This division can be understood from the fact that the Levites were not members of the civil order, and that the children of Israel, who were not Levites, could not be members of the ecclesiastical order. This can be seen from the fact that the Levites could not be numbered for purposes of military service, Numbers 1, 47-49, and therefore were not subject to the poll tax. They were not subject to the poll tax because only those males 20 years and older who were numbered for military service were to pay this tax. Numbers 1, 1-3, Exodus 30, 11-14. This tax went solely for the purpose of supporting the state and only those who were members of the civil order because of their military service paid it. Thus the poll or head tax created a division between church and state in the minds of the Israelites. The payment of this tax forced them to acknowledge that neither the church nor the state were supreme, but both were subject to and limited by the word of God. Both the civil and ecclesiastical sinners were under the covenantal law of God. They were both necessary members of Israel, yet their responsibilities before God were separate and distinct. The Levites had no inheritance of land in the theocracy, since God was their part and their inheritance. Numbers 18:20. This lack of inheritance was the equivalent to a tax paid by the Levites to God. This peculiar tax established them as being called of God for a special service to the nation. It was the acknowledgment that God was their high priest or king of the church, and they were His property, and therefore members of His covenant. In similar form, the poll tax established the same principle for the rest of the children of Israel. This tax was a ransom for their souls and was called the atonement money. Payment of this money signified that a man and his family were members of the covenant, since the money was paid by those who were liable for military service in the theocracy. It was a peculiar tax which established each man and his family as a special. Payment of the atonement money acknowledged that God was their king and that they were his property and under his covenantal law. In both instances, the payment of a tax signified that a man and his family were members of the theocracy of Israel. 
In addition to the poll tax, dividing church and state in Israel, it also provided for equal enforcement of the laws by the state. The state was the only agency within the theocracy that could wield the sword and demand compliance by the use of force. Since all human agencies will readily support those who support them, some means had to be established by God, which would prevent the state from favoring those who supported it. God appointed the poll tax as the means for accomplishing this end. The poll tax was to be the state's only means of obtaining financial support. This tax was to be a fixed amount for every male 20 years and older. Quote, the rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less. Exodus 30:15. If a man was married, his atonement money also represented his family as well as himself, since he was head of the family unit. Such a system of taxation meant that every man in his family financially supported and benefited the state equally. Since no man in his family could financially benefit the state more than any other man or family, the state would tend to ignore favoritism in its enforcement of law. Because equal taxation would tend to make the state see all men and families of society as equal, the state could be freed from unreasonable prejudice and contests at law. Moreover, payment of such a tax would reinforce in the minds of the Israelites the biblical principle that all men and their institutions were equal before God's law. It would tend to reinforce the juridical principle that God was Lord and neither man nor the state was above his word. In principle, the poll tax also limited the amount of taxes that the state could levy against a man. Although Exodus 30.13 specifies a fixed amount of half a shekel per male, the juridical principle of taxation established here in Scripture is that every man shall pay the same fixed amount. This principle was established by God in order to prevent taxation by the state from becoming a vehicle for the redistribution of wealth. Taxation was to be the means for reinforcing God's lordship upon man and for the fin financing of necessary defense by the civil government. It was not to be the means of furthering envy, greed, or covetousness. Any increase in the poll tax would be felt most by those with lower and middle incomes, such as an increase would take a greater percentage of their wealth than those with higher incomes. This effectively put a ceiling on the amount that the state could demand in taxes. This can be understood because society has always been composed of more lower and middle income members than those who are wealthy. Since those who are not wealthy outnumbered those who are, who are by a great margin, the state would tend to try to keep taxes as low as possible in order to please this larger portion of the population. They would try to do so because this tax was anything but hidden. It was direct, visible, and was to be paid in one lump sum. Because of this, the people would know who financed the civil government and who bore the burden of higher taxes. This, in turn, would produce a great restraint on the desire of the state to increase its revenue. Today, the theocracy of Israel and the Levitical priesthood are gone, but the juridical principles incorporated in the poll tax are not. God's law is law in principle and, for this reason, cannot be set aside. If God were so disposed to set aside one principle of his law, then he would have not sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. He simply would have set aside all of his word rather than have his only begotten son suffer for our legal justification. He would simply have justified us by negating his word to us. But this he could not do because he would also have negated himself since God's word to man is God's revelation of himself. This is why Christ is referred to as the word of God incarnate, for Jesus is God's personal revelation of himself to man. God cannot deny his word without denying himself, 
and for this reason, in principle, his law or word will be fulfilled in history. Matthew 5:17-20. The juridical principles incorporated in the poll tax are as binding today as they were in ancient Israel. A truly godly social order is required to implement and enforce the principles of the poll tax. To sum up, these principles are first, that this tax is the only source of funds that the state can have, and second, it must be a fixed amount for every man who also is to be subject to military service for the defense of the theocracy. These principles, in turn, reinforce the lordship of Christ. They limit the power of the state by limiting its power to tax. They establish God as the giver of wealth and blessings, rather than the state via taxation for wealth redistribution. They provide for equal taxation, which eliminates favoritism on the part of the state in contests at law. Through equal taxation, they reinforce in the mind of man and his institutions the biblical principle that man's relationship with God is covenantal, and that both man and the state are under God's law, standing equally before it. They also bring about a division between church and state, since this tax is solely for state use, and the other taxes are only for the use of the Levitical or social principle. Both are separated by God's law, yet both are under his lordship by law. Additional comments are in order in regards to taxation by the state. The only revenues that the state is allowed to collect in scripture are those obtained from the poll tax. Too often, various passages are quoted in scripture to give legality to the idea that the state can collect revenues from any source that it wants. The consequences of this would be to place the state beyond God's law, which would make the state a law unto itself. The most quoted passage for such purposes is 1 Samuel 8, 10-18. Here Samuel is telling the people what type of king they will have over them because of their rejection of God as their king. Their king, quote, will take your sons, and he will take your daughters, and he will take your vineyards and your olive yards, and he will take the tenth of your seed, and ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. 1 Samuel 8, 10-18. Such taxation is seen by God as just punishment on those who have rejected him and his laws of taxation. This passage cannot be interpreted as endorsing ungodly taxation by the state. Moreover, the belief that the state can accept gifts from its citizens or foreigners is false. The passages most often quoted for support of this idea appear in 1 Kings 10 and 2 Kings 5, 5 and 20, 12. The fact that various kings in Israel took gifts does not legalize such practices. God, not man, is the maker of law. The acceptance of gifts by the state is prohibited in Deuteronomy 16, 18-20 and Exodus 23, 8. The reason for this is that all human agencies will support those who support them. Since the, since the state is the sole agency within society that is to wield the sword in order to enforce compliance to law, the state must be freed from unreasonable prejudice in its enforcement of law. The acceptance of gifts by the state creates favoritism toward those who are the bearer of gifts. Which means, of course, it also creates prejudice against those who either do not give gifts or do not give adequate amounts to the state. This rests judgment and creates respect of persons. In principles, such perversion of judgment, regardless of how small, elevates man above the word of God. The acceptance by the state, or of its officers and judges, of presence and gratuities creates favoritism and prejudice and is, in essence, the taking of a bribe. Quote, Thou shalt not rest judgment, 
Thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift. For a gift doth blind the eye, eyes of the wise, and pervert the words of the righteous. That which is altogether just shalt thou follow, that thou mayest live and inherit the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Deuteronomy 16, 19-20 The state, because of its unique position as sword-bearer of God, cannot accept any gifts. It must be freed from unreasonable prejudice in its enforcement of the law of God. Finally, we come to the issue of fines by the state as a source of revenue. Fines, which are paid to the state for law violations, are pagan forms of revenue collecting and punishment. They are not biblical. They are not because they pervert judgment and stem from a pagan view of man. They pervert judgment because the state will put more effort into the enforcement of those laws that bring the greatest amount of revenues to the state coffers than those that do not. Those laws that have a low rate of monetary return per cost of enforcement will be less likely to be enforced than those that bring a high rate of return to the state. This is true because fines that are paid to the state stem from the pagan view that man is an economic creature. This view holds that man lives for material goods and not for his God. If this view, that man is an economic animal, is generally held by society, it can be expected that the state will also cling to this belief since it is composed of men. Hence, the state will be motivated primarily by economic concerns and will therefore tend to stress the enforcement of those laws that bring the highest rate of economic return. This rests judgment in the enforcement of law. For this reason, Scripture never gives the state the power to impose fines nor to receive restitution for violations of God's law. The state is to be free from favoritism both toward itself and towards others. The levying of fines by the state for violations of law is ungodly and is, therefore, destructive of both man and his society. The poll tax is the only source of state revenue that is allowed in Scripture. No other means for the collection of funds, whether it is taxes, fines, or gifts, are permitted the state by the word of God. The state, being the sword-bearer of God, must be freed from all ungodliness and unrighteousness of judgment. The poll tax is God's means for achieving the, this end in the area of taxation. It also impresses upon every member of the theocracy the knowledge that God alone establishes his relationship with man. It reinforces the principle that God is both Lord and covenant maker over man. It makes all those who pay this tax recognize the principle that their standing before God is covenantal. The payment of the poll tax forces the taxpayer to understand that he is an individual member of the collective body of Christ. Levitical or Social Taxation just as the poll tax is for the use of the state, the remaining taxes, free will offerings and gifts, are for the use of the church. This does not mean that these taxes and gifts are for the use of one particular church institution or organization. In Scripture, the church is the body of believers or community of saints, and not an organizational structure. These church taxes were to be administered by the saints and not by any one institution. This is why Belshalisha could deliver his first fruits to Elisha rather than to the priests and Levites. 2 Kings 4, 42-44 He was giving God his due, because he was giving his first fruits to God's bride or church, which was Elisha and his school of prophets, rather than to the corrupt Levitical priesthood. God's church taxes are for the support and furtherance of the saints and their godly social efforts. They are not for the support and furtherance of any ungodly men and their institu institutions. Neither are these taxes to be confined to local areas or institutions. 
the belief that Scripture requires that the first fruits and other taxes are to be only for use by local churches is false. Scripture has no such requirement. What is required by the Word of God is that we know the character of the men and institutions to whom we render our taxes. For example, Scripture required that the Israelites administer the poor tithe locally, that is, within their gates, Deuteronomy 14, 28-29. The purpose of this requirement was to force upon their minds the principle that they were personally responsible before God for determining who was truly worthy to receive this tithe. Local giving presupposed that the tither knew local conditions. For this reason, he would be without excuse before God to be tithed to those who were unworthy to receive the poor tithe. He could not claim ignorance for failing to administer properly God's tax for the relief of the poor. Thus, the juridical principle behind God requiring the Israelites to administer his taxes locally is that God holds the tither personally responsible for how and to whom he administers the Lord's taxes. The taxpayer cannot give his taxes to another party or agency and then claim ignorance if they should prove to be corrupt. God lays the burden of responsibility for the proper administration of his taxes upon those who are to pay them. We can see this principle in operation by examining Philippians 4:15-19 and 1 Corinthians 16:1-4. In Philippians 4:15-19, Paul declares to the Philippians that they have done well and that, quote, "Even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessity." In 1 Corinthians 16:1 through 4, Paul asks the Corinthians to lay up a collection for the saints of Jerusalem, just as he has quote, given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. In the first instance, the local saints at Philippi supported Paul's missionary efforts in Thessalonica. In the second instance, the local saints at Corinth sent their support to the saints at Jerusalem. In both cases, the local saints accepted Paul's description of his needs and of the needs of the saints at Jerusalem. They took personal responsibility before God for administering to the relief of Paul and their brethren at Jerusalem. With these principles in mind, we can now examine the Levitical or church taxes. These taxes are the first fruits, firstborn, and the tithes. Again, we must remember that God's law is law in principle, and that we must try to understand the legal principles of his word if we are to keep it. It is the principles that are incorporated in his plan of taxation that we must attempt to understand and implement. This audio version of Tithing and Dominion by Edward A. Powell and Rusus John Rushdooney has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Robert Dirksen. Please visit calcedon.edu to purchase a hard copy of this book.